first of all, thank you so much for giving me the privilege of being here today. What a great and fun reason to return to a town that I've loved from a young age and to a church that has loved and served me well. Having heard many powerful sermons um, from this very pulpit, I feel very humbled to be standing here today. So on that note, let's turn to the one who, in spite of my limitations and lack of polish, can teach us and change us through his words and ask him to do just that. Jesus, fount of life, we come to you today, maybe from a place of despair or maybe from the very best bliss that earth imparts. Either way, we turn unfilled to you again. Open our hearts and our minds and fill them with yourself. Grant us wisdom, understanding, and a thirst that may be quenched by you alone. Speak now, Lord, for your servants are listening. I've never really been good at Lent. I was raised in a denomination that didn't really do the church seasons uh, the way the Advent does. And so for me, Lent has really been much more than um, a 40-day-long opportunity to get rid of my extra baby weight. Um, I don't know if you can even call it baby weight when your youngest is two, but we'll, we'll call it that. Um, and really, I've never even been very good at that, seeing as my husband and myself and one of my daughters all have birthdays that fall during Lent, so there's always a good excuse for a cupcake and a glass of wine. So let's cheat and skip ahead to the very first Easter morning, reading from Luke chapter 24, beginning with verse 1. On the first day of the week at early dawn, they, being Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Today I want to focus on the question that the angel asks these women who are seeking Jesus. The angel asks, Why do you seek the living among the dead? I want you to ask yourself exactly that same question. Why do you seek life among things that are, for all eternal intents and purposes, dead? You see, among all the things that we seek lies a deeper desire. I think each of us has a desire that nothing in this world can fill. And that desire is in us because it was what we were meant to have. And it was, it's what uh, we once did have, but was taken away. We are, like the Israelites, a people in exile. We have been exiled from the Garden of Eden. And what was in the Garden of Eden was the tree of life. We were meant for eternal life, and we've lost it. You see, no matter what this world tells you, death is not natural. For me, it really doesn't matter if I'm at the funeral of a friend's 55-year-old day son whose casket is this big, or I'm burying my, 85, my family's burying our 86-year-old grandfather who's lived a life full of success and philanthropy and left a legacy of 15 great-grandchildren. There's just something that seems wrong about death, and it's because God didn't originally have death as a part of the plan. He intended for life to last forever in perfect harmony with himself. In the interest of time, and just because I like her wording, I'm going to read the um, Sally Lloyd-Jones account of the exile in her Jesus Storybook Bible. The Menendez family sent this to me when my first was born, and we have enjoyed it uh, well. We read it all the time. So this is uh, right after God had asked Adam and Eve if they'd eaten the fruit he commanded them not to, and they had blamed each other. Terrible pain came into God's heart. His children hadn't just broken the one rule. They had broken God's heart. They had broken their wonderful relationship with him, and now he knew everything would break. God's creation would start to unravel and come undone 
and go wrong. From now on, everything would die, even though it was all supposed to last forever. You see, sin had come into God's perfect world. We're reminded in Romans 5 that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, we're all in the same boat. Each of us wants what was lost and can only be found in Jesus Christ. The problem is, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, the thirst cannot be quenched. Our hearts are thwarted and they are pointed in all sorts of directions horizontally, trying to fill a hole that can only be filled vertically. We take the good things of this world and turn them into ultimate things, thinking that they can bring us peace, joy, satisfaction, and ultimately life. After having lived in Memphis for one year, one of the young pastors at my church said, You know what I've noticed about East Memphians? People in East Memphis are great worshipers. They just have terribly hollow gods. What he's saying is that they are seeking life among things that do not offer life. They may quench our thirst for a time, but inevitably we will find ourselves thirsty again. What I want you to see this morning is that if you don't know Jesus and aren't worshiping Jesus and can't say that your ultimate hope is in him and therefore your hope trumps even death, then you are worshiping something else. And if you do indeed know Jesus, there's a good chance that you too fall back into the habit of worshiping idols much of the time. In the 1830s, when de Tocqueville recorded his famous observations on America, he noted, and I quote, a strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants in the midst of abundance. You see, Americans were living as if prosperity could quench their yearning for happiness. But such a hope was illusory because, de Tocqueville added, the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. Prosperity had become an idol, and we worshipped it because we were looking to it for satisfaction in life. An idol isn't just a physical statue like the ones that Paul encountered on his missionary journeys. In Acts uh, 17, Paul arrives in Athens, and Luke notes that he sees that the city was full of idols. And in the original text, I was told that the word that was used there for full can literally be translated to smothered with. And I love that image because sometimes I feel like my heart is just smothered in idols. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller says that an idol is what our heart creates when it takes a good thing, like a successful career, romantic love, material possessions, and even family or health, and turns it into an ultimate thing. Our hearts deify these things as the center of our lives because we think that by getting these things or just perfecting these things, they can give us the, the significance and security that we're looking for. Again, Keller says that an idol is anything that is more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. Time and time again, we're given examples in Scripture of people who devote their entire life to, to seeking things that they think will satisfy them. And the Lord deals with their hearts to show them that he is jealous for their hearts and wants that place in their heart. Take the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10 who asks Jesus, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Look at the ridiculousness of the question itself. First of all, we know that an inheritance, by definition, is something that is given, not earned. And this man wants to earn it. Second of all, his focus is on himself and what he must do, not on the Lord Jesus and what Jesus can do for him. Jesus cuts straight to the idol in this man's heart when he tells him to sell all that you have and give it to the poor. I don't think the lesson here is that we're supposed to go sell everything we have and give it to the poor. Jesus was dealing with this one particular man's counterfeit God, his possessions. How might Jesus deal with your heart today? Let's look at another man who thought his wealth and status could save him. In his book, Keller uses the story of a man named Naaman to illustrate this point. In 2 Kings, we learn about Naaman, the commander of the Syrian army. Naaman was one of the most powerful men of his time. 
The Bible tells us that he was valiant and highly regarded. He was also good buddies with the king of Syria and an envied socialite. But, and this is a big but, he had leprosy. Despite his position in society and the wealth he had amassed, Naaman was slowly becoming crippled and disfigured and death was imminent for him. During that time, lepers were the outcasts of society and Naaman had spent most of his life being an insider in society. When uh, one of Naaman's wife's young Israelite slaves heard that he had leprosy, she told her master, um, Naaman's wife, that he should go and see Elisha, the prophet, in, in Samaria, that surely he could heal Naaman. So desperate for healing, Naaman took his money, got the king of Syria to write a letter to the king of Israel asking for healing, and went straight to the king of Israel, not to the prophet, but to the king. The king of Israel let Naaman know that he was not God and could not cure leprosy. So finally, Naaman went to Elisha's house. And I'm going to pick up in 2 Kings 5.10. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go, wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near to him and said, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, to Elisha, and he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know now that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And Naaman urged him to take it, but Elisha refused. Naaman is saved. His physical life is spared and his sin is cleansed, but what's more, he found the one true God. Despite his attempts to find healing through his wealth, his connections, his prestige, and even desiring to wash in the rivers of Damascus instead of the River Jordan, he is actually healed through the direction and urging of many slaves who were the lowest people in society and through washing in the dirty River Jordan. He finally humbles himself and finds his salvation. But even after that, he still tries to pay Elisha. He still goes back to Elisha and tries to give him his money or see what he can do for him. He cannot stand the idea of free grace. No matter how much power, prestige, and wealth he had, it couldn't save his life or his soul. And if anything, it's his power, prestige, and wealth that hindered him and kept him from being saved sooner. And y'all, that's, that really, that's such a picture of us. Do you not see that you and I are Naaman? We cannot stand the idea of free grace, of not being able to contribute anything to our salvation but the sin from which we must be saved, or in Naaman's case, the disease from which he must be cured. And even when we are saved, we still think, what can I do to keep his favor? What can I do to pay him back for what he's done? And the answer, of course, is always nothing. Grace is a gift. Will you not let go of your wealth and your prestige and simply cling to the cross of Christ and rely on nothing else but him for your salvation? Will you not say, as the hymn writer Charlotte Elliott wrote, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. And will you not come back day after day, hour after hour, minute after minute? There's no way I can use this short amount of time to address all the idols that plague our culture, but I want to look at one more story at Jacob. Jacob is going to his homeland in search of a wife, and he finds his uncle Laban, and Laban has two daughters, 
Leah and Rachel. Leah is the older one. Rachel is the younger. And the Bible says that Rachel was beautiful and Leah, the Bible says, had weak eyes, which I think was just maybe a not-so-horrible way of saying that she was not so beautiful. So Jacob offers to work seven years. He picks, he picks Rachel, obviously, and he, chooses, he says that he'll work seven years in exchange for having Rachel to be his, his wife, and so Laban agrees. So he works seven years. Seven years are up. And again, in the interest of time, I'm going to read from my kid's Bible. It says, Laban played a nasty trick on Jacob. Instead of sending Rachel to marry Jacob, he sent Leah. Now, in those days, they didn't have electricity, so it was dark in their tent. And besides, women wore veils, and you couldn't see their faces properly, so Jacob suspected nothing. The next morning, Jacob woke up and screamed. His new wife was lying beside him, but it wasn't Rachel. It was Leah. <laughs> you scoundrel, Laban said. <laughs> Laban, he cried, you scoundrel. But Laban said, work for me for another seven years, and then you can marry Rachel. So Jacob worked for Laban another seven years, and at last Rachel became his wife. So now Jacob had two wives, but of his two wives, Jacob loved Rachel the best. Clearly, Jacob had made an idol of Rachel. He was willing to work for 14 years when the typical work period required to earn, a, to earn a wife during those days was less than two years. He'd married a second woman, which he probably knew was ungodly, to get what he thought would make him happy. He devoted his life and sacrificed his morals to get what he thought would complete his, his life, Rachel. Now, moving along in the story, and this is messy, so stick with me. When God saw that Leah was unloved, he decided to give her children, but Rachel remained without kids. So Leah gets busy and has baby boy after baby boy after baby boy. And knowing what sons were worth during that time, each time she delivers one, she says, now my husband will love me, or this time my husband will become attached to me. But her bearing son never gives her what she is seeking. In fact, each time she just keeps sinking deeper into her loneliness, and it becomes more and more painful for her to see her husband gaze adoringly into the eyes of her childless, and probably therefore love handleless sister. Finally, she has a fourth son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. And she named her fourth son Judah, and the Lord closed her womb. You see, Leah had made an idol out of being the perfect wife and mother and carrying on the family line with her sons in order to merit her, her husband's love. And when she finally got to the end of her rope, as I imagine having four sons will do to you, she finally relented and praised God. In the meantime, Rachel becomes jealous and is mad at Jacob for not giving her any sons. She couldn't have revealed her belief that having sons would give her life any more clearly than when she actually says to Jacob in Genesis 30, verse 1, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob, despite the fact that he is addicted to Rachel's love, is looking to her physical beauty to satisfy him, therefore making her his God, and recognizes that she is trying to make him her God, and responds to Rachel saying, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And the story goes on with these two children giving their servants to Jacob to try to get more kids and just, I mean, just crazy, messy, dysfunctional family stuff. So Jacob may have had, had two wives and even more women than that on the side, but he had no harmony in his home. Leah may have had four sons, but she did not have her own husband's affection. Rachel may have had her own husband's affection, but she didn't have the children that she longed for or the lineage that she longed for. And as a result of all this jealousy, selfishness, and idolatry, we have the most dysfunctional of families. In all of this, though, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but I want you to notice what God does. Despite these three sinners using, all of each, using each other to achieve their life's happiness, God takes the unlovely and makes it lovely. He takes Leah, the unloved, the one with weak eyes, the Bible says, and makes her the ancestral mother of Jesus, through Judah, the son whom, through whom she prays the one true God.
You see, until you understand how accepted and loved you are despite your unloveliness, you will constantly seek fulfillment in the things of this world, and you will not find it. You will live as though you're a slave, a slave to beauty, a slave to earning enough to retire at an early age, a slave to reaching the peak of your career, a slave to gaining respect and impressing those around you, a slave to earning the love of another fallible human being just like you. Until you look in Jesus and see that in him you are not a slave but a child, a child who has inherited, not earned, but inherited his beauty, his righteousness, his riches, his respect, his status, his love, what, what Sally Lloyd-Jones in her book calls a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love, an eternal life with him, then you will wear yourself out on an endless journey to find peace and joy in the things of this world that, while they may be good, cannot ultimately satisfy you with the life for which you were originally created. I want us to see here that idolatry is not just one little sin among many. It is the fundamental problem of the human heart. In Romans 1.25, Paul says that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and, created, worshipped and served created things rather than the creator himself. We are told by scripture that we are dead in our sins. And so what we need is a new heart. We cannot just pluck idols out of our life or else they will come straight back or they will be replaced by other ones. We can't just say, okay, Lord, I'm, I know that I'm putting too much stock into you know, whether or not my kids get into this school or whether or not I ever get married or whether or not I, I, I get this job or whether or not Vanderbilt wins the basketball game, um, which was revealed as an idol in our family last week. Um, and so would you, Lord, please help me take that idol out of my life. Thanks, and now I can get on with my life. That's not how he works. What we have to do is have a new heart, have life breathed into our hearts by the only one that can offer life. And um, I have a quick story. My friend... Um, uh, she was my RUF leader in college, Paige. She always has the greatest stories. But she, when she had moved from Nashville to Dallas for a job, she was about 32 and single and had taken a job in Dallas. And she hadn't been to a doctor in forever. She just hadn't gone in for a checkup. And her brother was a doctor. So he said, Paige, you, you've got to go just get a checkup. That'll make me feel better. So she finds an internist in Dallas and goes to the doctor. And he's doing the checkup. And she's, you know, everything seems good and healthy. And then he listens to her heart. And he's like, tell me about your heart. And she was like, well, I mean, it's in this vicinity, and it beats, and, you know, what else do you want to know? And he's like, well, about your condition, your heart condition. And she's like, I, I'm, I do not have a heart condition. I have a, I have a good heart condition, I guess. And, um, and he, he says, no, you know, something's off. Something, this is, this is an irregular heartbeat, something's off. I'm going to send you to a, a friend of mine who's a cardiologist. And she says, okay, but I've got to make it to this lunch, so I'll, give me his number, and, you know, I'll, I'll deal with that later. And he's like, no, 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 no you got to go today. So he calls the cardiologist. They go upstairs. The cardiologist listens to her heart. Long story short, he diagnoses her with, and I don't know the medical term, but a heart condition that requires open-heart surgery to, uh, to fix. And so she's sitting there taking this in, and she was like, but otherwise I'm fine, right? You know, I mean, I run every day. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I, I'm healthy. And the doctor was like, honey, okay, I know you don't have a medical degree, but I'm telling you your heart isn't working right. It doesn't matter what the rest of your life is like, what the rest of your body is like. Your heart isn't working right. And that's what our hearts are like. We don't, it doesn't matter how, how, how much you can get your ducks in a row or make your life seem right or make it seem like, okay, a church is the number one priority, but the, you know, the rest is up there too. We need a new heart. What we need is not to weed the idols out of our life. They will come right back. We need true life breathed into our hearts. 
We are given a picture of this in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Aslan and the girls are at the White Witch's castle and they see so many of the creatures of Narnia that the witch has turned to stone. Aslan goes to each one of them and one by one breathes on them. The stone crumbles to the floor and they are freed from the curse. We see this in scripture. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He brings back Jairus' daughter from the, bed, from the dead. But my very favorite picture of this is found in the book of Ezekiel. When God gives a vision to the prophet Ezekiel in Babylon, where the Israelites were after being exiled from their homeland. The Israelites were, for all intents and purposes, dead as a nation. They were losing their national identity, and for them, that was everything. I'm running out of time, as it seems the Presbyterians seem to do, Bill Boyd and um, I think Stuart Latimer did too. So hold on to your hats while I read fast. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. That's one of Kate's favorite songs. Thus says the Lord, God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews upon them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. What each of our hearts wants is to come out of exile and to have life. And the only way we can do that is to, to escape the death that our sin deserves and to live in the righteousness that union with God requires that can only be found in submission to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the life-giving breath of the Holy Spirit. Truth be told, I may as well be preaching to a room full of dry bones if we don't have the breath of God to revive us and give life to our hearts. I don't really find myself in pulpits often, or ever, really, My preaching is usually directed at my husband and my children. They're probably glad I found another audience for this half hour. But honestly, even if Paul Walker, Paul Zoll, or the Apostle Paul himself were in this pulpit, it would be worth nothing without the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and the gift of the Spirit. My mom once gave me a little pack of, they're called conversation coasters. They're little little, um, cardboard coasters, and each one has a question on it that's supposed to be a conversation starter. Being a lover of music, my favorite one is, if, you could, if your life could be set to a soundtrack, what would the theme be? What would the theme song be? So I leave you with this hymn as a prayer, whose author is John Newton, in hopes that the Lord may strip our heart of its idols and make us true worshipers of no other God but Jesus Christ and make his mercy the theme of our songs, the joy of our hearts, and the boast of our tongues. 
Now may the Lord reveal his face and teach our stammering tongues to make his sovereign reigning grace the subject of our songs. No sweeter subject can invite a sinner's heart to sing or more display the glorious right of our exalted King. Amen.